You're listening to the Speaking Tongues podcast. I'm your host, El Sharice. Each week, I sit down to a conversation with multilinguals where we discuss and celebrate language, life, and culture through our own perspectives. Episode 37, Speaking Japanese. Hello, language lovers. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Speaking Tongues, the podcast in conversation with multilinguals. My guest today is Yoko, the creator of Food Story, a Japanese food experience that offers cooking classes in Los Angeles and culinary tours in Japan. In this episode, I talk with Yoko not just about the Japanese language and vocabulary, but also about the culture. We discuss the differences between men's and women's vocabulary and dialects throughout Japan and the influence of indigenous people in Hokkaido. She even gives us a surprising tip for anyone wanting to learn or improve their Japanese language skills. But because we also like to talk about culture on this show, Yoko also tells us about Japanese foods, including the origin story of matcha and sushi, and some of the big differences and similarities between Japanese and Japanese American foods. We even learn a bit about traditional Japanese color names. In short, this episode is full of information about Japan. Thank you so much to Yoko for taking the time to have this conversation about Japanese language and culture. If you like this conversation or any of the other language conversations we've had this year, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts from wherever you are in the world so that other language lovers like ourselves can find the show. And one more thing. This episode will be the last one for this year, 2020. The Speaking Tongues podcast will be back on January 4th with a brand new episode. And in the meantime, please visit the website, Instagram, or Facebook page to follow our news. Okay, let's chat. Hi, Yoko. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Mm-hmm. And me for too. This- episode we are talking about Japanese so I like to start each episode with the same question and that is what is your first language and how many languages do you speak I speak Japanese and English and a little French oh now which languages did you hear spoken in your home or in your community when you were growing up I grew up in Japan, so most of the time Japanese, but my father was in a trading business, so he spoke, he speak pretty good English. Mm-hmm. So did he, did he speak, mm-hmm. did he speak English at home with you? And well, with he was family? listening a lot of Beatles and <laughs> 70s music, so oh. I grew up listening to those music and that made me more conscious about different language. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Did you have, maybe when you were growing up, did you have a lot of your peers or your, your classmates who also spoke English? Not really. I was always the best student in an English class, <laughs> <laughs> but not French class. Yeah. So mm-hmm. what was it like when, when you were going to school in Japan? What languages mm-hmm. were you exposed to in school? Like, did you have to learn another language um, or was yeah, it, so was it English, optional? English was the only option when we oh. grew up. So everyone have to study English and, you know, starting from seventh grade. So middle school, we started. But I think that nowadays, the starting time to start our English study is getting earlier so I think elementary school started teaching oh wow but Japanese education is more focusing on reading and understanding by reading Mm -hmm. so I was more good like many people can read but can't speak Mm -hmm. I've heard that before actually that a lot of people Mm -hmm. in Japanese uh, a lot of people in Japan mm-hmm. really want to practice with English speakers so they can feel mm-hmm. more confident when they speak English. Right. So just because we, like a Japanese education doesn't offer so much of conversation opportunities, people definitely 
understanding their weakness is a conversation skill. Mm. So after graduating schools, there are so many English conversation, like language schools, that is flooded by Japanese adult. Oh, wow. I wonder if the school systems there, Mm -hmm. if they try to, like maybe they realize this issue or concern that Japanese adults have. And like, I don't know if you would know, but I wonder if they are trying to get younger kids to speak earlier, earlier on now. Yeah, so I don't know if you ever heard but there is a foreign English teacher organization in Japan that welcome a new graduate or I don't know if they even have an age limit, but they are inviting foreigners who speak English to teach English to Japanese kids. So oh. they're invited to the public schools in Japan to stay over one year or two years. I think there is a cap. And then, so they are supported by the Japanese government, their housing and I think housing and also the salary. Mm-hmm. So they can for for one year or two years. Yeah. So they teach English. That's really cool. I wish I knew about that when I was <laughs> when right. I was in college. <laughs> I would go to uh, Japan for a couple of years, and I love right? working I with kids. I think it's a great opportunity. So I know quite a many people I met in here who went to Japan for that reason and came back. So, and there are people who just decided to keep studying or keep teaching English in Japan too, mm-hmm. because there are many language schools there. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Oh, my next life, I think I'll, <laughs> I'll be, I'll be <laughs> yeah, able to do that. You can put that in your option for the next <laughs> lifetime. <laughs> so what was your experience like um, when you were learning English? Would you... And, and I guess as you became an adult and you're mm-hmm. starting to speak with people um, and you want to improve and you want to feel confident speaking, mm-hmm. what, was, what was that like for you? And what parts of it were, were easy or difficult? Right. So as I said, speaking part was easy, but building up vocabulary was always a challenge. Hmm. Like conversational level is probably... I don't know when you study other language, do you have any books? Like in Japan, we have always given this 3,000 vocabulary or 4,000 vocabulary books that you have to memorize. Mm-hmm. And those are pretty good like collection of vocabulary that will be often used for common like a daily conversations. So remembering all the vocabulary was the most challenging things for me but once you memorize that then i think it's easy to communicate Mm -hmm. so i think every language i think that well once you studied once you learn english maybe learning spanish or german might be a easier things but from Japanese or any Asian language to English was definitely a different vocabulary that have no <laughs> relations at yeah, all. Yeah. So I think building up vocabulary was a tough one. And yeah. for me to English to French was also challenging because English doesn't have any female or masculine in noun. So right. I always get confused too. Yeah. I'm I'm glad that you said that because there's something that I'm curious about in the Japanese language that I've heard mm-hmm. about, and that's that um, vocabulary can vary according to the gender of the speaking person in Japanese. Uh-huh. So so basically, women use different vocabulary than men do. Uh, there are some yes, like for example. Like uh, for the rice or the bowl of rice, the man can say meshi and then women would never say it. Hmm. It just sounds more masculine and it's just like we have a choice of choosing the vocabulary, how you say it. Right. And the man will say, oh, give me like a meshi 
and then women would never use that vocabulary, certain vocabulary. But the, usually the woman, if you're studying Japanese, just re remembering the female vocabulary is much more proper. So I just suggest to focusing <laughs> on those vocabulary because, you know, <laughs> there are too many vocabulary to remember. Mm -hmm. And it's just safe to learn the more polite way of saying it. So it's, you would say that basically the, the, the way a woman would talk is more like formal and polite and the way yes. that a man would talk is, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So is it that the words are different or is it the context is different? Like the word is different. Okay. It's context is the same. It's just like a two vocabulary that you can choose. And, mm -hmm. you know, women sometimes say it in a manly way too. Right. So. Is there, I want to ask, mm -hmm. is that uh, practice, I guess, of women speaking a certain way, men speaking a certain way, how mm -hmm. does that continue when so many women around the world are mm -hmm. fighting for equality and they're, you know, so for example, for example, in Spanish, a lot of people are getting rid of, or they're not using the masculine and feminine. So like uh -huh. Latino, Latina is become like Latinx. Uh -huh. um, and people are, I guess, less accepting of gender roles mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. how, how does how is that um factor into the way women speak and the way that men speak in this vocabulary I think in japan, japan yes in japan it's probably more masculine masculine word is less getting less popular mm. because like i said the female words is more polite and it's just more proper and masculine book like a word is just too masculine right. these days so if i have to choose like a which is getting more common or popular i have to say it's like a masculine words are getting less popularity and i would say like if i see someone's choosing the masculine word i would think oh that guy must be so much chauvinistic also right. so right. you just get the impression of those things and it's not really maybe at households some men are still using those words but maybe you don't see you don't hear so much in public mm -hmm. that makes sense so maybe right? like you yeah. wouldn't hear it like on the news or right like on the subway yes definitely yeah exactly <laughs> in news you will never hear those masculine vocabulary mm -hmm. are they considered is it considered um rude or is it just informal it's sometimes rude and yeah it's definitely informal mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily yeah. rude i guess depending yeah on what... it's not necessarily rude at all right so another thing I I've heard now listen I I don't know much about Japanese and I've mm -hmm. I've like researching but I also uh -huh. I like to ask because uh -huh. who knows better than someone who speaks Japanese and someone who like, yeah, yeah, grew ahead. up in uh -huh. Japan but um so one thing that I learned also is that there are four writing systems in Japanese Right. You know, I don't know what, can you tell me what's the full writing system? Because I know three, but I just can't name the fourth one. Um, hiragana, hiragana and kanji and katakana. Those are the one I know. Okay. So there are three. Three for sure. Okay. Um, but I might missing the fourth one. I don't know. <laughs> see, no, I don't but know yeah, three, three, three writing system is definitely the most popular one. Okay. And hiragana, you know, the kanji is a Chinese character. Mm -hmm. And that's adapted in the Japanese writing system. And even before we, like a Japanese, started using Chinese character, we already had a spoken language. Mm -hmm. So 
hiragana is definitely like hiragana, but okay. So in Asian Japan, we didn't have any writing system. So it was imported from China. So we are using that all the scholars and aristocrat was studying through the Chinese character, Chinese philosophy book. Mm-hmm. So all written language was just Chinese. And then man was the only one reading and studying. And then after that, like in you know, seventh or eighth century, women wanted to read us or for women's hiragana was developed. Oh. So it was more like mainly the scholars and men was reading Chinese characters and women was writing in hiragana, I think mainly. Okay. So that's why in nowadays or like after, I don't know how it's been transformed, but now it's a mixed form of hiragana and kanji. Mm-hmm. But because Japan has their own language and then the Chinese, um, Chinese character was imported, each Chinese character has a two different um, sound. And one word, one, one sound is more Japanese sound and apply it to the Japanese meaning. And then one, uh, one sound was more sounds like Chinese characters sound. I see. So yeah, even with like a one Chinese characters, we have to learn two different sound at school. Oh so that God. was very confusing to me. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that's why when we were kids, we learned so many Chinese characters. Otherwise, you will never remember these. Right, right. And because it has a thousands of Chinese characters, and you know, the mandatory school is up to ninth grade. So after the ninth grade, it's, it's a more advanced Chinese character you were learning. So if in the, cha- uh, in the newspaper, you don't see those, those characters. If you use a more difficult characters, you would put the hiragana next to it so that everyone can read. Oh, I see. Okay. Yes. That is really confusing for a child. Right? I yeah, would just to have such a. Uh, but you know, as a kid, we never know why we have two different names. Well, we, I think we learn. But yeah, we never question why we have to learn two sound. So, yes, that's huh. the all, all things about advantage of learning. Uh, new things in a younger age yeah we just have to memorize or that's all about it (laughs) oh my goodness i would love to know about some dialects in japanese and Mm -hmm. how they're different throughout the country um what are some hallmarks of the way that different people speak in throughout different parts of japan Right. Uh, so I think that one popular dialect that everyone knows is a Kansai dialect that many like a Kyoto and Osaka is called around the Kansai area. And they have a specific dialect that sounds different, but we can make sense each other. And that was con- like a, perceived as a more like a comical and more like a comedian is known like a, is a popular thing. Mm-hmm. And when you go to Northern, the intonation is so different and vocabulary is different that I have no idea what they're talking. Really? If they just use their dialect. But, and if you go to Okinawa, the southern part of Japan, they had a, they were recognized as a different country. It was belonging to one of the southern Providence in Japan, but they they had established their own dynasty there, so their vocabulary is so different too. I've heard that Okinawan mm-hmm. is is uh, I don't know. I've heard that it's really different. Um, it is. It's... It it was almost like a different kingdom or dynasty. So I'm looking at a map right now, so mm-hmm. that. As you're naming cities, I can uh-huh. situate myself. Yeah, yes. Um, so do you think that, okay, so you said like up north in Japan, 
what mm-hmm. city are you talking like Sapporo? Apnos. Hokkaido. You know, so Sapporo, Hokkaido was actually a very like a stand, they mainly speak standard language because after the 1900 or maybe late 1800, people start to move there. This is like a propaganda of Japan, like because they, they have to claim that Hokkaido, the northern Japan, is their land. So many people immigrated there. Hmm. So many, like mainland people, moved there, and especially maybe from Tokyo area. So they do have a more like a speak standard language. As as a native Hokkaido people, we call it Ainu. They have their different language. Oh. You know, Ainu people are probably like in, indigenous northern people are more close to, you know, their culture is similar to northern people like uh, Alaskan people or like Eskimo or mm-hmm. others. Mm-hmm. So I can't really tell what language they used to speak because I don't think they preserved it. I don't know if they still speak the language. I've heard the music and maybe lyrics still remains, but I don't know if they really actually use it these days because they didn't have any preserved land and Mm -hmm. it's probably more assimilated to the Japanese culture already. Right, right. There is a one museum that if you ever go to Hokkaido, I want you to visit. <laughs> okay. There is a Northern People Museum mm-hmm. in Abashiri, just the northern part of Japan, Hokkaido. They had an amazing museum there. It's not just about the Northern people living in the Hokkaido. It's all about Northern people living in the world. <laughs> Oh, wow. So, yeah. They showcased it. The, the exhibition was pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Here in the States, mm-hmm. Japanese culture is very popular for so many reasons, for food, for animation, for fashion, mm-hmm. um, et cetera. The list goes on. I would love to know, in your opinion, how you see your culture interpreted by Americans. And what do you think some of the big differences and similarities are between Japanese culture and Japanese American culture. Mm. Yeah, it, that's interesting. You're trying to compare the Japanese culture with Japanese American American culture. That I've been living in the U.S. for almost like a twenty years, and I haven't. You know, I used to live in New York. And I didn't see any Japanese American. And when I moved to California, then I met so many Japanese American people. Mm. And they are all third and fourth generation. And I was surprised to see how they are more traditional Japanese than the Japanese in Japan. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yes, and I and I think because you know when they start a fourth generation, their grandparents are from like my older than my grandparents, mm. and they are very like a old Japanese like mentality. Mm. So when I when I was speaking to them, I felt like I'm speaking to my grandparents or older generation. It's just like a, it's. Japan had gone so much modernization and forget about like a traditional culture last mm-hmm. 50, 60 years after the World War II. So talking with those generations that is, you know, they moved to U.S. in the early 1900 or before the World War II. So, mm-hmm. and then they are trying to preserve that part of ideology that Japan had. So, in a culture wow. so sometimes i'm just shocked to how they try to preserve the japanese culture in that in an old days idea mm-hmm. do you notice mm-hmm. that i guess i'm thinking also like the way that americans interpret japanese culture how mm-hmm. do you feel it's authentic or how do you feel it's inauthentic 
Mm. You know, you have another section of questions asking about this, but I want to talk about Japanese restaurants in U.S. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Japanese restaurant in U.S. is surprisingly only 20% is owned, like maybe that tw- less than 20% is owned by a Japanese or Japanese-American. Mm-hmm. So 80% is owned by uh, someone else who interpreted Japanese food as their own way. So sometimes it's so different from Japanese food. And yeah. that's how I feel about Japanese culture interpreted by Americans. Mm. I, I always think it's different because, and, you know, we can always talk about food. And I know you are the woman to talk to about Japanese food. And trust mm-hmm. me, we'll get there. I think uh-huh. that um, not just Japan particularly, mm-hmm. but a lot of people who come mm-hmm. to the U.S. and, you know, that's one of the beautiful things about you know the the u.s is that we have so many people coming from all over the world and we have so Mm -hmm. much great food but i Mm -hmm. feel like it gets the wrong word i'm gonna say corrupted but i feel like Mm -hmm. it it gets Uh all twisted around and Mm -hmm. it becomes more like, we call it fusion, right? <laughs> right, like fusion. That's the uh-huh. word. It's like this fusion. And I, I feel like, you know, it happens with Mexican food. You know, mm-hmm. it happens with Japanese. It happens with Chinese food. It happens mm-hmm. with Italian food. Right. So I think that it's just like, <laughs> I'm always yeah. so interested with like how Americans interpret right. other cultures and like what happens to it. Like, why do, uh-huh. we, why do we do that? You know, I, I, I have to share this story that I had in New York. So I was walking the um, Broadway and I was so tired and getting hungry. And I stopped by at this Chinese restaurant. And I thought in my mind, Chinese food should be Chinese food. But it, I, I, that was a chi- uh, it was a South American Chinese food. Oh, so Chinese Cuban food or something like it's totally uh, not Chinese. (laughs) (laughs) And I was so upset. I ordered uh, sour, sour pork. And that sourness is usually added by a vinegar. Mm. But they added a pickles, (gasps) like a pickled cabbage and pickled cucumbers with like a stir fried with a pork or something. So I said, this is something else. <laughs> Knowing how to cook the specific dish, I thought like, no, this is not what I ordered. Was and then I found out that was a, like a Chinese Cuban food. Hmm. And you know, the Chinese Cuban food is probably that's what they eat. And how can I judge what I'm eating is not the authentic food? So because it, it is already named as a South, like a Chinese Cuban food. So I, I was dumb that I didn't know what's Chinese Cuban food. Also. Mm. <laughs> so it's really like, even when we see it in a Japanese food, we don't know what, who is making it and what ethnic group interpreted Japanese food as it is. So mm. you see, like the last few days I, I was taken to this, ramen restaurant owned by Thai people and it was a fusion of ramen mixed with a tom, a Thai curry huh. and it was delicious yeah. but I don't call it as a ramen and mm-hmm. if you find it in Japan that would be a scandalous thing really <laughs> it's definitely not ramen but you know American people have no question about calling it as ramen Mm-hmm. So just like a, yeah, ramen in Japan is such a small definition, but when it comes to America, it's just such a wide range of calling things in ramen Yeah, that, you know, in a, some market, I saw a vegetarian ramen and that noodle was not even wheat noodle. Oh, it no. was some rice noodle and rice noodle Japanese would never call it ramen, but they labeled it as ramen and it was still okay to sell it as ramen. So it's just shocking to me to see how people define food in U.S., Yeah, I guess. It's just become such a broad understanding and broad definition of 
one specific category <laughs> that, that I'm like, no, I can't, I, I oppose to call it ramen, but no one would listen. So <laughs> um, oh, what can we do about that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. I had the first time I had ramen um, was in Hawaii uh-huh. and I was with some friends and they said, oh, do you like ramen? Let's go to this ramen place. And I was like, oh, my God, I never had ramen before. Am I going to like uh-huh. it? Like, I'm in Hawaii. I wasn't expecting mm-hmm. to have, like, Japanese food. Right. But I also didn't realize how many Japanese right. people and how much Japanese mm-hmm. culture is in Hawaii. But that's another story. Mm-hmm. So I have this, this, I remember the name of the place, ramen, oh, God, ramen Nakamura, it was called. Mm-hmm. And it was, to this day. hmm one of the best things I've ever eaten in my life. Oh, nice. It was delicious. So Mm -hmm. I come back to New York. I'm a brand new fan of ramen. Mm -hmm. I'm converted. Mm -hmm. I can't Mm -hmm. wait to have Mm -hmm. more ramen. Mm -hmm. Every ramen bowl I have just does not compare. It's just not the same. And Mm -hmm. I started thinking, well, maybe it's because there's not a big, Japanese culture here on the east mm-hmm. like in, mm-hmm. I don't want to say on the east coast but like in New York City um but I've had like even the ones that people say are famous and there's lines mm-hmm. outside the door and people are lining up for this ramen I'm like it's okay like it's not <laughs> it's not <laughs> like I don't know like it's, I mean it's not yeah, bad well but... I can I can totally explain why <laughs> because you know California it's probably the biggest Japanese population mm. outside of Japan, like a living in Japan, uh, Japanese living population wise. But Hawaii is probably the most popular destination for Japanese to go mm. is it? So those food that you ate is not done by a Japanese American. It's probably really a Japanese investors, like a, the Japanese chef cooking for Japanese tourists targeting so it's totally like yeah whenever i go to hawaii and then the hawaiian yeah soba noodle or like any japanese food you can you can find a really good japanese food in hawaii Mm -hmm. especially oahu right that those are the most popular that's the most popular japanese tourist destination so yes that's definitely you can find a good pretty authentic japanese food yeah there yeah i would i would definitely say so like we had the we had i mean that was one one japanese dish i had but Mm -hmm. um you know i've had i don't even remember what else i had but i just remember everything was delicious and it just Mm -hmm. it's not the same here and it's (laughs) it's disappointing yes and it's a food is always like a changing that I don't even, sh- I shouldn't even call the ramen as an authentic food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I have to question what's authentic. So yeah, ramen is pretty new food. Like a ramen is a new, definitely maybe last hundred years or less than hundred years mm. food developed in Japan. So yeah. what about food in Japan? Like what? do people typically eat on a mm-hmm. you know with their families at home um what kind of restaurants are popular in in japan or mm-hmm. what type of flavor profile do foods have there so one things i'm sh- I, I can tell is japanese didn't grow up eating a spicy food mm-hmm. and like a strong flavor so it's very like a subtle and we always compare this in uh, American culture that American culture is more about adding flavor, you know, layers of layers and Japanese always like to make it simplified. Hmm. So Japanese, like it's a saying that Japanese is more about like how, how much we can subtract as opposed to American chef always trying to add how much layers, flavors to add on. So Japanese food is definitely simple and simple flavor. Mm -hmm. I think that goes for like 
design too in Japan. Like it's right. there's a simple elegance with a lot of Japanese culture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. You know that it's interesting that <laughs> eating out. So here in California, people go out like well, not these day after COVID, but people go out to eat sushi almost like every week or several times a month. And that wasn't a thing in Japan when I grew up. Mm. So it's definitely a sushi became a common thing in Japan, whereas in Japan, it's still a special occasion food. Really? And yes, and I just remember like we were making sushi like at home, but when we go out eat at a fine sushi restaurant, it was really just a few times a year not like even every month oh my goodness and now here you can get sushi at the gas station Mm -hmm. oh really yes (laughs) that's a surprise but like you know japan like now we do we everywhere has a conveyor belt sushi Mm -hmm. so those are those become more casual and accessible but it used to be just considered a nice fine dining and we don't go there often right and my, if my father goes for the business, you know, the well, business dinner, he always just come back with uh, some souvenir sushi box, to-go to box, and mm-hmm. that made us so happy. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about Food Story. Um, oh, yes. How and why did you decide to begin a business that focuses on Japanese cuisine? And tell me what it means to you to share your culture and your food with people in Los Angeles? You know, so I was working as an architect and I just really wanted to try out something else other than architecture. So the only option I can think about was food and Japanese food because I love it so much. Mm. But when I think about opening a restaurant or doing something related to food business, I really couldn't think about what I should be doing. So I really have to drop the idea of restaurant or catering. And I thought I'm not really cut it out for chef. So I dropped the idea of restaurant catering and then started thinking about what else I really get excited about. And and after the years of experiment, I realized I really liked that. <laughs> like experimental, like a communication through a different meaning. Hmm. Like I was working in a corporate America architecture office. So it was more about ego versus ego. And I get really fed up and I was trying to find out a different way of communication. And I figured communication through cooking is a great idea. So that's how I became like a, tuning into using a cooking as a vehicle to communicate with other people's different manners. So that's how it really begins. I didn't really come up with a cooking school idea from the begin with. So I really want to promote a different way of like a building up a team or mm. communication. So then it's really just getting back to my love of Japanese cooking And then finally I decided, okay, teaching a Japanese cooking is a great way to get marriage, my idea of communication in a different way and sharing my knowledge of Japanese cooking. Right. So that's how I learned it. But again, what I didn't know is that I thought I can introduce so many different Japanese food that people were not so thrilled about learning about the things that they don't know. Mm. And probably I'm not a good marketing people. And this is certainly like a 10 years ago, maybe in nowadays is a different things, but people definitely are more interested in what they know. So sushi and other more popular food, like a tempura or mm. something that people know is something that I can teach. So that's why I started thinking, oh, maybe ramen making is some probably fun activity I can offer. 
Yeah. So I created a ramen class at the beginning. And that's really a fun class that was throughout my, like, 10 years of teaching. That's probably the most popular class that I taught. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I had a difficult time that I really wanted to bring in and educate a different, like, a regional Japanese food. But people don't know how, good, how the flavor is. And suddenly people just, I think, they don't want to pay what they don't know, I think. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. So I really ended up teaching something that people already know or sort of. So izakaya food and sushi and ramen and maybe a cute bento box. Right. Uh, probably the most popular classes that I could teach. What are some of your favorite um, dishes to cook? Whether you teach them, whether you teach them mm-hmm. or you don't, what are some of your favorite dishes to cook? I always like making like a marinade dish or pickles. Mm-hmm. So it's just a, such a simple thing that I marinate vegetables or like, like a pickles them. And I also marinate fish with miso and just keep eating the same food (laughs) yes pickle is great yes i love pickle what do you call pickled dishes in japanese uh skemono skemono Mm Skemono. something like a usually we pickled it when we press it we press it with stones or something heavy after marinating with salt or something salty. So mm-hmm. skeru means really like a marinating or pressing it huh. and submerged with a salty brine. So if you see that word in Japanese Kimono? cuisine, mm-hmm. you know that it's something that's pickled. Right. Yes. Learning a little Japanese today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is there a dish that you would like to teach people uh-huh. how to cook that you haven't had a chance to? I think, you know, Japanese cooking is so simple and so healthy that I would like really like to teach some healthy cooking. Mm-hmm for those who needs help to really make everyday cooking as their daily routine mm-hmm. it's just like a, to start the japanese cooking you only you only needs to have like a five seasoning so starting a japanese cooking is so simple and sometimes you don't need often you don't need oil at all huh and but some like a japanese use a lot of sugar so i'm trying to substitute sugar with honey or maple syrup and try not to use that much and my daily cooking is really simple and pretty good (laughs) and i wish i can always teach that to those people who really needs to change their diet Mm-hmm. So I really have to think about how to do that. Maybe the online cooking is a good way to start. What are the five uh, seasonings that you said? Oh, okay. It's, you know, soy sauce, miso, rice vinegar, and mirin. Mirin is the sweet sake and sake. Oh. That's yeah. So that's that's not even using, like, like, spices they're just yeah japanese yeah they don't that don't have much spices but we have a lots of dried vegetables mm-hmm. dried seafood dried vegetables to make a soup stock and it's very simple yeah i want to cook with you i have a japanese place uh-huh. <laughs> i have a japanese yeah. supermarket the computer blocks down oh great me. yeah i should go pick up those five Mm-hmm. And maybe we could do like a video or something. Yes. Um, you know, I had also posted some of the cookings on YouTube video. So definitely check those recipe 
Oh yeah, I definitely uh-huh. will. And for people yeah. who are listening and they want to, who are probably starving by now, <laughs> where, tell us, <laughs> tell us where we can find you. Yes, YouTube yes. You know, my business name is a food story, and I think yeah, you can look it up on a Japanese food story. But yes, it, if it's like a YouTube, you can look it up on a daily food story. And Instagram, it's Japanese food story. And Facebook, it's a food story too. Japanese food story. Oh, wow. This is amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to add all of that in the show notes. And, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and hopefully people who are have like rumbling bellies by now like me mm-hmm. um they'll they'll find you and and be able to cook with you so i know you know recipes. it's really amazing how you that someone in a different world can find you through this mm-hmm. like i got the email from australian radio stations asking if i'm if i can appear on their radio show talking about sushi history so um, and then she mentioned that she find me on the youtube i'm like mm-hmm. wow <laughs> That's amazing. I have no idea. So did you do it or will you do it? Oh, no, I just got the email. So oh. <laughs> I don't know in Australia and LA time difference. And they're saying it's like a night night show oh, and boy. they want a live appearance. I don't know if the time, time difference works, but I can definitely help to answer some of the questions. Their question for sure. Yeah. Yes, I, I actually had uh, did a research about sushi history beginning from like thousand years ago to oh, wow. these days. So I have this PowerPoint presentation that I've only done presentation several times in the last 10 years. So I'm thinking I should definitely post that presentation on YouTube. Yeah, that so would be so at cool. At least someone, yeah, someone like you who might find interested can listen and learn about sushi history. Yeah. What's the most yes. interesting thing that you learned when you were researching sushi? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love food history. Learning a history through food is so different and uniquely different. And I can memorize all the history if I learn from the food history point. <laughs> <laughs> You know, in the old days, we only learn about what years, what incidents happens. And it's just like a, so hard for me to remember all the things. Yeah. But if I learn the history from the development of food, I'm like so easy for me to remember. Mm-hmm. I think that's really cool. If I, I, I'm like you too. I think I can't remember dates very well, but mm-hmm. if I can remember like, oh, this is the first time somebody made a peach pie like uh-huh. would, you know i would remember right so peach plantation better. flourished by 13th century and then flour became more available in the u.s by this century and then it marries in the 18th century mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yes yeah. that's very unique that's a yes. very unique way uh-huh. to look at history <laughs> i think right not um, just through politics and right. war yeah that's a development of food something happy yes <laughs> <laughs> um so do you have any advice or not advice not advice mm-hmm. let me start over do you have any mm-hmm. tips or tricks for someone who may be wanting to learn to speak japanese well i think watching the japanese movie or animation is really the best way don't you Mm. think you watch it quite a net like a lot of netflix dramas and movies and i started watching a netflix japan when i was back in japan Mm. and now i'm back in japan and i figured out that you can do a bpn change so if I change the BPM to Japan, I can continuously watch Japanese drama and TV. And oh it's just, um, it's so fascinating. I'm like, wow. Like some of the dramas and animations, even, like, I don't know. Have you watched any Japanese animation? I, Which is pretty good for adults too. It it's is. not really just for kids. Yeah, so I... Yeah. 
I have American friends who watches Japanese anime, and I I just ask their recommendations, and I watched it, and it was amazing. It was like, wow, it's a great story. <laughs> so <laughs> I think learning through reading manga or Japanese animation is it's definitely a great way. Would you recommend that somebody learn mm-hmm. to write? Mm-hmm. Japanese or speak Japanese first or do you think it's best to try to understand how to do both at the same time as you're learning I think understanding both at the same time is probably the best thing well I don't know uh, the Japanese character can be hard uh, maybe just listening and speaking, fo- focusing on speaking and a lot of healing and speaking is might be an easiest start. For me, I think that um, I'm not actively learning Japanese, but I, so like, even for me, I haven't really watched a great deal of Japanese movies or I've seen um, animation, but it's always I've only seen it dubbed over in English, so... I see. Yeah, but I think that one thing I noticed, so I watched um, Giri Haji on mm-hmm. Netflix. I watched mm-hmm. it, I think, over the summer, and mm-hmm. I loved it. I thought it was so good. But it I, was interesting, <laughs> sorry. Uh-huh. <laughs> I realized that for me, listening to mm-hmm. listening to them speak Japanese with one another mm-hmm. was like really helpful for mm-hmm. me to just kind of get my ear used to the sound. Right, of it. right. Um, and think ahead. about that reading manga and manga is has a great stories and many dramas and animation is based on manga. Oh, so just think about manga is a reading text, and then from there you can also watch animation or drama. So it's just both reading and listening too. Mm-hmm. So it's just a great way of learning through manga, reading manga, and the animation based on manga. There are so many of that. Do so you that's have why any I think favorites? that. <laughs> Uh huh. <laughs> well, the most recent one I watched and read is a uh, co- the things uh that this title is called Mushishi. 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 <laughs> yeah, it sounds funny, but mush mushishi. Yes, it's like an insect. It's insects that we can't really see. It's Ooh. a supernatural being or oh. like insects that we can't see. But the things that we can't see. It creates a problem in our societies, but there are people who can see this and then they solve the problem. Mm. So that was an interesting stories, a collection of stories. Oh, wow. Based on the different insects or like the different things that we can't see cause mm. of causing the problems. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. I'm yes. gonna have to check it out. <laughs> yeah, but that you know, the translated manga in US is pretty expensive. So oh, I was boy. shocked to learn how much it costs to buy just one manga, but I, I'm sure you can find it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I wonder I know that people there's like a dedicated like translator web oh yes uh-huh who, yes exactly uh-huh so cool i only realized that recently it's like imagine like how great of a job that is if you're really into anime and- oh yes i think so too <laughs> i totally agree <laughs> do you have anything else you want to add the one thing that i get really curious about it these days was uh looking for the color in old Japanese name, hmm. there was like you know have you have you heard about Japanese poems like um, it's called waka or what what is it? No, no, okay. It's it's even in U.S. This Japanese form of poem is pretty popular, and. That made me get into uh, checking the color variation, how the Japanese names are different colors. The color chart 
it's like a pantone chart,、oh. but in a Japanese old name. Okay. It's quite fascinating to see the colors after colors. Like just looking at the navy color, there are like a tens of different names.、Really? And it's all very poetic and so beautiful that I don't want to just call it as blue anymore in Japanese. <laughs>、oh. So, yeah. And I just look it up. I just wanted to share the link with you on the, online and I look it up on a Japanese traditional color name. And I could find so many of that website. Where? But yeah, Japanese, Jap- I can send you a link later. But、okay. Japanese had、uh, so many names in a, like a different shade of blue or red or pink. And it's all such a beautiful name. So I was just like, I can spend hours of just looking for the meaning of these colors and how I can make a poem out of it or like use it a poem. It's just like a beautiful thing. So I thought it's like, you know, it's probably not for the language learner, but just to understand that like a different nuances and the variation of colors that Japanese name it in a specific color. I think that's really beautiful. So, you most likely see those words in poetry. Yes, you will never really use it in a spoken language. But when you look it up in a poem, but sometimes you just like stand by how Japanese name it certain colors based on the scenery or the based on the time of the day. How the sunset goes down, and then the, just like a little blue pinkish colors after the dawn, they call it in a certain name. Yeah. Or just, just like a little nuance that the colors will picture the scenery instantly. Is、I、there a it, word、yeah. that、mm-hmm. you've come across that, is, that sounds really beautiful to you? Oh, there are so many. That now I <laughs> Sorry, I, I didn't even pick the one word for you. That's、But、okay. I just wanted to mention that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there is so much to know about Japanese culture. And I think that,、um, you know, I'm glad that we had this conversation because, and, and I, think, I think it's okay that I didn't talk so much about language either because、mm-hmm. there's so much about Japanese culture that I really think. Um, gets misunderstood and、mm-hmm. things that people really don't understand or don't readily know about Japanese culture. If you know, you're like me, like I've never been to Japan,、um, mm-hmm. I don't have many Japanese friends. So,、mm-hmm. if you know, someone who's like me maybe sees what Americans see of. Japanese culture, they make it a very narrow view of、mm-hmm. a culture that's really rich and,、right. and, and you know, wonderful. So I'm、yes. really happy that you've been able to share so much. But I also noticed that Japan is not for everyone either. <laughs> I've heard that. I also offer a culinary tour in Japan. No. So, so spring and fall. It's that's the two best season to visit Japan. I do a tour. So I introduce many Japanese food, regional food. So, and then I learned that, yes, of course, I, I like seafood and fishes, but I'm not really consciously feeding my guests all the seafood or fishes, but someone finds it, it's too much seafood <laughs> or too much fish. So, Definitely, Japan, if you are a meat lover, and yes, of course, Japanese beefs, as nowadays, you know, wagyu is a premier thing, and everyone、mm. wants to eat it. But when the Japanese, like a daily food, or it, it's not really accommodating so much of the beef in a daily dining, like a house, especially at home. We don't eat so much beef.、Mm. So, my tour is really just wanted to is, let everyone to experience more of the regional food cultures. And depends on where we travel, I just didn't have enough meat. And then someone said that, oh, 
where's beef? <laughs> so I'm like, oh, oh, okay, I totally forgot. So it's still for me the learning process. And also for vegetarian or vegan, those are also tough too. I had someone requesting for vegan and Japan has so much vegan. If you go to temple, like it's all vegan food, mm. but we use so many fish as a stock making and yeah. like a, some little things has a yeah, it's fish in it. So finding a vegan option was also extremely difficult. Oh, so, so yeah, so I wish I can offer a vegetarian vegan tours in the future, but it's still very challenging. Like a, even like when we said soba, like in a buckwheat noodle, mm-hmm. the dipping sauce has a fish flavor it like a right. fish stock in it so right. not as not really specifically for vegan people yeah. so i was really like wow it's so hard to find a vegan and mm. especially when i walk on the tour i'm not doing in a capital like a big city my tour is taking people to the countryside so countryside food is not really vegan welcoming food usually right. So the last question I like to ask is, mm-hmm. do you have any jokes, popular sayings, tongue twisters, uh-huh. cool slang words, idioms, words of wisdom, or words of advice in Japanese to share? Uh, I, you know, I, I thought about this last few minutes and then the only things comes up to my mind was... I don't know why this comes up to my mind, but I'll share with you. It's called Ishinowe ni mo sannen. And it's about the sannen means like a three years. And then Ishinowe means like a sitting on the stones for three years. Hmm. It's about testing your endurance or patience. If you can sit on the stones for three years, you can achieve anything. So <laughs> that's the thing. Maybe because we are going to we're going through one of the most difficult times of the, of a lifetime, hopefully. Yeah. So maybe three years. You know, if we can endure the hardships for three years, you can conquer or you can achieve anything. So can you teach maybe, me how to say it? Ishi no ue ni mo san-nen. Okay, we're gonna have to do this slower. <laughs> Ishi no Alright. Yeah, meaning sitting on the stone for three years. You know, whatever the things we can I don't know, we can find a solution or we can have another different kind of path to go through. If you have a tolerance to stay on the same hardship for three years, you can find an exit. <laughs> that's, that's I really, really, I really like uh-huh. that because it's so yeah. easy to give up when you mm-hmm. really can't see things are ending, but if mm-hmm. you, you know, you keep going and. I just like giving the three years to anything these days, like in my lifetime, because, because of this old saying that, you know, if you stick to the one idea for three years, at least you can find something that stay with you for your lifetime or mm-hmm. just to give you another path to go through. I really like that. And on a personal mm-hmm. note, I needed to hear that. <laughs> because mm-hmm. Yes, right. Because like, yeah, you just started doing something new. And just think about yeah, if you stay doing this for three years, you'll definitely open up the new new window or mm-hmm. new path. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with me my pleasure with all of uh-huh. us <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and thank you so much for for sharing um sharing so much about japanese culture and and i learned a lot so i hope everyone that's, listening that's also great to learned hear a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. in this situation where we're talking and we were just talking for an hour 
Um, mm-hmm. What is the best way in Japanese to say goodbye? Sayonara. 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 Mm-hmm. Okay. Sayonara. Or gokigen yo. Yes. Sayonara. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much um, uh-huh. for having this conversation with me. And I'll be talking to you soon. I look forward to it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank Arigato. you. Sayonara. Arigato. Sayonara. Uh-huh. Bye. 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 <laughs>